Writer's Block, and it this proudly presented by the Valverde Board of Tourism. Valverde, where the jungle comes alive. <laughs> I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjax, and now Suicide Jockeys. The other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the left this time is, as I stammer, David Avaloni, comic book writer, filmmaker, and coffee achiever. Love it. Uh, if you missed any of our previous conversations, uh, episodes featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, Cecil Castellucci, Alex DeCampi, and non and many and all that good stuff and good people. Our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and other purveyors of worthwhile ear cracks. So double on back and uh, check all of that out. Um, great show today, uh, but we have a couple of books to, uh, to pimp. Uh, why don't you uh, go ahead and go first, Evelyn? Uh, head on down to your local comic shop and tell them, I want Elvira meets Vincent Price because who wouldn't? And as I've said frequently, the title is The Pitch. Elvira meets Vincent Price. Either you're interested in that or you're not interested in that. And if you're interested in that, you're very interested in that. So hopefully you will enjoy it. And Ryland, what you got coming up? If you dig that, you dig that. Um, uh, my new book, uh, Suicide Jockeys, is a bonkers uh, tokusatsu fit. Uh, in a nutshell, we pitch it as Voltron meets Fast and the Furious. Uh, it is also a, uh, a uh, somewhat pretentious examination of, um, of non-traditional families. Uh, but it is awesome. Uh, Co-created uh, with a fellow named Brad Warner, who is a prolific uh, uh, Zen author. Um, uh, who also worked for about a dozen years for Zubaraya Productions in Japan, uh, which was a company founded by the, the man who uh, created Godzilla, um, but is best known for producing all the Ultraman shows. So Brad was, uh, for about a dozen years, a producer and an executive on Ultraman. Uh, I have uh, written for the directors of six of the nine Fast and the Furious movies, so uh, we pretty much have, you know, Fast and the Furious meets Voltron covered there. Um, it is tokusatsu for the uh, American action movie audience. Uh, check it out. It's awesome. Uh, in comic shops in August via SourcePoint Press. Uh, it is available for pre-order now, so put that shit on your pull list. Um, but uh, I'm standing today, too. I'm going to acknowledge that. Uh, I know this is great radio for the people who are listening on iTunes. Um, I have changed up my background. So uh, so um, if you're interested, pop over to the YouTube channel and check out my new background. It's pretty bonkers and pretty awesome. Uh, but great show today. Uh, let's bring the editors on. Huh? Yes. Nicole DeAndrea. Hi, guys. Kevin Kettner. Hello. Oh, I'm not sure I pronounced your DeAndrea. 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 Kettner, I think I've got. Yeah. yeah. Pretty straightforward. Two-syllable German last name. Get it done. Nice. Uh, Kevin, tell, tell, <laughs> tell us a little bit about yourself, Kevin. Uh, I was uh, an editor at Dynamite, where I worked with David on multiple titles, Betty Page and Elvira. And then... Uh, I started working as a freelance editor, and now most of my work is being done at Ablaze Publishing. Good to know. Yeah. And Nicole? I got my start at Action Lab as an intern. I actually worked my way up to being their submissions editor, marketing director. I did a lot of editing on their titles like Princeless and Zombie Tramp, so kind of a wide age range. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and I also adapted to comics uh, Peter David's novel Artful and the Miraculous Tales of Ladybug and Cat Noir TV show to comics. Uh, currently, I've moved on to editing a bunch of Scout Comics projects that I can't talk about yet, um, <laughs> as well as uh, editing some series for Tapas, like Thirst and Come Down Machine. And I'm working on writing my own series right now, Road Trip to Hell. Nice. And I, what's your I, I should say, too, that uh, Nicole was a huge help on uh, Aberrant and Banjax while I was at Action Lab. She was the, uh, um, you know, she was the... Uh, the person you always knew you could go to and, uh, and, and, you know, get a bunch of help out of and, uh, find the answers to. So, uh, um, yeah, she was great over there. Huge fan. Thank you. So, Thank you. Yeah. And likewise for, uh, Kevin, I have missed Kevin greatly since he left dynamite. Uh, he was an enormous help for me and a great ally. And that's, I think for beginners, editing may be the most, the part of the process they understand the least uh, and know the least about and know the least about how much they need an editor and what kinds of help an editor can give. Some people think it's proofreading and nothing else. Some people think it's continuity and nothing else. And, you know, uh, of course, it's all of that and more. But uh, the question I wanted to kick off with is, what do you as editors think creators need to know about editing and about the process? And Kev, you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I, I guess, I guess there were, you know, there, there have been examples of this happening, but I feel like a, a misconception that a lot of people have is that editors are your enemy. <laughs> like, like they're there to, to ruin your ideas or whatever. And that can't be further from the truth. Like I, I would imagine that even when you get a bunch of notes from an editor being like, well, Hey, so we're going to have to do this. There was a lot of fight in the background. You don't know about <laughs> to get things done. So yeah, I mean, editors are like, so it's like, all right, well, it's someone, you know, it can be a friend, but it's a person, you know, usually someone paid, but who's there to like, help you get the best product you can. You know, it's, it's there to support you on whatever level can happen. And so, you know, sometimes you write something and there's an outside point of view of like, well, that's good, but eh, it could be better. You know what I mean? Like, or this is where we kind of need to go. Like, let me help you get to that point. That's how I look at it anyway, so. And Nicole, what's your first thoughts on that? Yeah, I can definitely jump off that with 100% agree. Like, you don't want the creator to think of you as the enemy. Oh. Uh, I know for sure one of the first things I like to say when I'm working with someone is I don't want to be, a, like, a dictator. I'm not, like, forcing you to make any of these changes. This is a discussion. Like, these are suggestions that I think will help your book. I'm just trying to help your book. And I think if you kind of open it like that and say, like, what I say isn't superior, you don't have to do everything I say, it kind of opens the creator up to being more um, more open-minded about your ideas and considering it. Because as someone who also, you know, is a creator and writer, I know how precious my ideas are to me and how, you know, you can get emotional about your ideas in a way and take things very personally. So it's really important to be able to be open to a dialogue about your ideas. Sure. So in, in, in my estimation, this is my take on it. The difference between... Uh, good and great is 2% of the material, right? 
Uh, the the difference between good and horrendous can be two percent of the material, right? <laughs> um, uh, and an editor is there to help you find your way with that two percent. Um, I have seen it in the film business a hundred times, and um, you know, I mean, the film business there are a lot of these checks and balances. I mean, you have a literal editor of the film as it's being shot who is reinterpreting the stuff. Um, but you have executives, you have producers, and, and usually as a screenwriter, for me, I have a person like Nicole or Kev, who is called a development executive, who is taking me through the process of actually getting the script ready to film and is, is checking this 2% and making sure that everything is, is, uh, is, is clean. And, um, uh, you know, writers can be solitary folks. I mean, you know, Nicole, at least I know, is also a writer and a creator herself, so she knows this. Uh, 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 very well, but um, you know, I sit in this cave that I'm in right now, and I create these things, and I'm the only one that sees them. And if it stays like that, things can get really skewed and 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 and, and terrible. Like mm -hmm. it, you know, it makes perfect sense to me is not a <laughs> that does not mean it's going to make sense to a wide audience. And so uh, you need someone. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the I at first I start with. I have three or four creators that I trust implicitly and, and we trade stuff back and forth. They read all my scripts. They read all my comics before they go out. They proofread stuff. And so by the time anyone sees one of my, my, my creations, like it has been vetted by four really smart people who know comics backwards and forwards, no story backwards and forwards. And that is key. And again, even if they, even if they change one thing per, per, uh, per um, help me change one thing per issue, it ends up being a huge deal. Again, that can be the difference between between good and great. It can be the difference between good and horrendous, unreadable, awful. Um, and so what is amazing about an editor is that it is not just a friend. It is not somebody that is um, that is uh, you know just sort of throwing stuff against the wall or giving this a try. It is a person who is it is their job to do this. They have trained to do this. They have specifically chosen tools and honed and sharpened tools to do this. Um, they are very good at this, at, 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 you know, at some of them are really good at creating themselves, but, but there is a skill set uh, 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 to making someone else's work better. Um, and, and, and that's interesting. And so, uh, you know, if like, accept the help creators, there are a lot of creators that watch this, accept the help. Uh, this is a gift. Um, uh, the worst travesties I've seen happen in Hollywood uh, happen to really smart, really great creators, great writers, great directors who get to a position where they will not accept help anymore. Yep. No one can tell them no. No one can make a suggestion. Um, and Avaloni, you know, you've said this any number of times. You put it better than I have. But you know, when you're on a set directing, uh, if 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 the craft service uh, gal has a great idea, a great idea is a great idea, right? Yep. Um, uh, so yeah. Those yeah, no, the the I the two percent thing is a really great observation because the number of movies I've watched where there was just something so easily fixed in the storytelling that's just terrible and ruins everything. And you just go, did no one tap JJ Abrams on the arm and say, you know, you could you could just you could just have Spock say this one thing and this would all make sense, but instead you've committed to this bafflingly dumb thing for two hours now. And it is, it's something that I call the genius problem. When you think you're a genius and you lose the, you, 
you no longer are surrounded by people who will tell you, uh, you know, David Lynch has never had an editor for the last, I don't know how many decades. I saw Lost Highway when I was in the middle of cutting a, a low budget movie and I was working around the clock and I like left my office to see a movie and go back to work. And because of how long I had been working on editing this movie, all through Lost Highway, my right hand kept hitting the all stop button to make a cut, to make a, I'm like, oh, this shot's gone on 89 seconds. And uh, we, we got all of the information that was crucial out of it 35 seconds ago. So uh, cut, 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 cut. And all of my pounding on this chair seat did nothing to make the movie better or the pacing smarter. And, you know, my, my go-to example uh, is always, because it's a famously great movie and a famously terrible movie, is, uh, you know, I think when you've, when you've never actually worked, when you have the dream of being a creator, when you're one of those people who talks about writing, talks about making movies, you think about the primacy of the singular vision. The vision of the artist must not be compromised. To which I always say, The Phantom Menace has one screenwriter, and Fellini's eight and a half has five screenwriters. <laughs> One of those is a fucking masterpiece. One of them really needed somebody to say, midichlorians, do you really, is that a road you wanna? Okay. Uh, and uh, so, you know, to me, that's the, there are certainly people who need less help than others. Uh, and there are people who need a lot more help than others and finding out which of those you are and what kind of help you need and from whom, you know, is, uh, is kind of a crucial thing. Um, well, you know, and, and it works that way too. I mean, like, I mean, not to, you know, inflate your ego anymore, but like working on like Elvira, you were so in, you know, working with you, I don't think I ever gave you notes more than <laughs> maybe the most minimal stuff because you knew what you were doing. I'm reading it. I know it makes sense. And so my job is like, I don't want to be like, well, I got to get my hands in here. Sure. So if I know it's correct, great, let's, let's do this. You know what I mean? But I mean, so sometimes people do really know what they're doing. And then at which point, you know, my job becomes all right all right, we're good. Let's, let's, let's keep going. I mean, but in, in, in that situation, like I knew I could trust you, especially for things that like, maybe I wasn't fully up to speed on. And then I'd have to go and do the research and then like get up, get on the same page as you. But like, yeah, I mean, that exists. Too. You, you caught, you caught some things. You Something, yeah. But I mean, for the most yeah, part, yeah, like, like you sent me some emails where I went, Oh shit. Right. That doesn't <laughs> at all that doesn't make any sense i need to well, right it. but i mean it, it wasn't like I, I i didn't have to like you know screw around with the story much you know it was it was usually little things that were really easy to fix and that is and and that is always a lovely thing <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is always a lot yeah i mean i just realized i've been doing a kind of a, the last two three years i've been doing development notes for a production company and i don't know if this is your guys experience but I love when I read a script and it's got one glaring giant problem with it because <laughs> I feel like that takes me off duty for nitpicking the thing for like reading every, making sure every line I'm like, there's this one thing where you guys really missed the boat. Let me, you know, let me just lay it out, you know, let me course correct a little bit and then I'll get another draft. And, you know, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a funny thing because it's, 
you want to be helpful and you want to be present and you also, you know, and again, not to pat my own back, but I think Kevin, you're right. That part of the job is saying, no, that's, that works. That part that totally works. Well done. Move on. <laughs> you know, it's, it's even, hard. it's even weirder sometimes when you're working freelance and somebody's like, paying you out of pocket to take a look at their script and be like, all right, help me here. And you're like, oh man, I hope I, you're like, there's, there's part of my brain. that's almost like, oh man, I hope I find something wrong with this. So they don't think I'm just taking their money and moving along. Right. But like at the same time, like I'm not trying to inject, you know, more than what's needed. And even like, if I find a problem with something, I, I constantly do this thing where I'm like, okay, here's, some really bad ideas that I hope you don't take that (laughs) I hope inspire you to find a better version to like, I'm just giving you an example of what I think like could work, but you're a better writer than I am. So please find a better version of this. You don't have to use this, but I'm just telling you here's where the problem is. You know, all writers say a variation of that in writers' rooms, by the way. <laughs> you know, they're like, here's the dumb first drafty version. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the fix for this. <clears throat> you know, I when I've done some of the uh, script doctoring, I sometimes have to, it's easier to illustrate in dialogue. Like, here's what, you know, yeah. and I was like, it's well, awkward to say she could say something like, and it's like, well, let me just write three lines of dialogue and say, look, don't use this dialogue. This is just, you know, this is just a way out of the problem that you're in. Yeah. I mean, what, what we're talking about is there is a, there is a communication that needs to be, I don't know, established, negotiated, and kind of both sides need to, need to understand. I mean, it's, uh, you know, having been in hundreds of like notes meetings on Hollywood stuff, um, there are people that don't understand kev what 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 you were just saying is that you know a lot, they're they're pitching fixes you know the note is the note is not there's <laughs> yeah. a problem here yeah. the note is you need to go in and you know that helicopter it needs to be a boat uh <laughs> or the world's gonna end you, you know and, and and you get those notes and that's where there is a problem and 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 you know that th- that's where that's where a writer can turn off because a writer can be like a fucking boat. Are you kidding? That's, that's fucking nonsensical. Like, like this guy's an idiot. I'm never listening to another thing that he says for, for the, the, the six months that we're going to continue to work on this. Fuck that. And the project suffers because of it. The relationship suffers because of it. The writer gets fired. Uh, 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 the exec doesn't get the, uh, the, the project across the finish line. The movie doesn't end up getting made. Um, uh, you know, when you've been doing this for a while, and if you stick around, because most people that do that don't stick around for too long, you realize um, on both sides that we call it the note behind the note. You know what I'm saying? Any note that comes up is not, you should change it to a boat. Uh, even if they say you should change it to a boat, it is, there is a problem here. What is the note behind the note? It's, it, you know, and, and it might not even be here. It might be that, you know, the, the boat that they want is, it, they're, they're t- telling you to put a boat on page 70. The problem is not there. The problem is that you set something up on twenty on page twenty three that is flawed, and it's so flawed that they're saying put a fucking boat on page seventy right now. Yeah. And so there is this unpacking that that has to be done and this negotiation that has to be done. It's like it it, it is easy for a writer to turn off when they get the boat note, um, uh, and and it helps if if the editor if 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 the executive can say, look, not a boat. But, you know, here, like you said, here's, here's a bad fix. 
but there's a problem here. Let's let, let's roll up our sleeves. Let's have a discussion. Let's start a dialogue. Let's figure out what the problem is. And then usually after, you know, a couple of rounds, a knock on the ball back and forth, you realize, holy shit, you know, uh, yeah, this, this scene on, on 23 is all wrong. Like, let's let's sit here and let's let's workshop this scene on 23. And then you, you figure out the problem on 23. And then you realize... Oh, it's not supposed to be a helicopter or a boat on seventy. It's supposed to be a fucking uh, snowmobile, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, and 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 if both parties were not, had not subscribed to this dialogue, you never would have found the snowmobile. And when you get the snowmobile, uh, th- this metaphor has become a meta five, excuse me. But um, but then you get great instead of good, or good instead of horrendous, and things get made, and everybody lives happily ever after. There, there's a there's a metaphor that uh, Walter Murch uses, and he's talking about film editing, which is a very different animal, but I think it applies here to giving the bad note. He says it's like dream analysis. If you're sitting with your therapist and you say, I had a dream about a plane, and the therapist says, what kind of plane? You don't know. You say, I don't remember. I don't remember the plane. So the therapist says, was it a 747? And you go, no, it was a biplane, actually, because they forced you into the choice. You didn't want to choose. You didn't want to, you couldn't access the part of your brain that knew the answer to the question until someone said the wrong thing to you. Uh, And then that also, it also reminds me of the great development joke about writers, which is how many writers does it take to change a light bulb? You can't change a light bulb. The whole third act relies on the light bulb. That's a little, little development joke. Uh, but anyway, I, I mean, and, you know, and the number of times I have found myself arguing in favor of not changing the light bulb, like we all do it. We have all sat in that meeting and go, but I, the light bulb's my favorite part. I have tried very early in my career to develop the attitude of when they threw something out of a script that I love, just go like, and now that is free for me to use that in some other script that these particular people will not own and are not paying for fantastic <laughs> like you have what you've done is given me back a good idea that i can now pedal elsewhere and i don't have to worry about pleasing you with this idea that i like but uh nicole what uh, what attracted you to this work how did you uh get into it uh well i've been a big comic book fan since i was a teenager i mean uh it's funny because I, I went to my first convention, not for comics, but for an actor I was super into as a teenager. My mother surprised me with like a trip to a Megacon in Boston to meet James Marsters, who my little <laughs> teen heart, my little he's teen heart had a huge very crush. Beautiful man. Awesome. Yes, he's, he's a very awesome. beautiful man. Yeah. Yes. So, oh, for sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I went to that and I ended up finding like a dollar box of comics, which was like, I didn't understand comics at all at that point. I thought comics were like these super pricey things because I like seen like one show where it was like, oh, you can make all this money in comics. So I was like, oh, it must be really pricey to buy a comic book. So I found like a box of like dollar comics and my mind was like blown. So at that point I got a ton of comics. I went back and found comics. I didn't even know I had basically in my house and uh, it kind of sparked something in me cause I'd always wanted to be a writer and um, it pretty much just kind of snowballed from there. I started writing articles about comics. I ended up getting the internship while I was in college. And I, I started, I actually got a part-time job of all things, not comics, but I got a part-time job while in college editing a scholarly journal because I needed to make money to afford books for college. Yeah. So I did that and I realized how much I loved the editing process. 
So then it kind of, I kind of married those two things when I got the internship because I realized, oh, I can just edit comics. That's, I would love doing that. So it kind of just, I kept doing that for years. And thankfully now it's pretty much what I'm doing full time. So I'm really happy with it. And the, the industry, I mean, I think it's very different. The, uh, the connection between editors and writers in comics is pretty strong. Like in book, in novels, I, you're an editor or a writer, I think. It's a much more common thing for that to be segregated. But I feel like Mark Wade was an editor. I feel like Buse editor. I like I, a lot of, you know, well-respected high-tone writers come out of the editing process, come out of working for a comic book company in an editorial, uh, in an editorial way. And uh, Kevin, where did, how did you dive into this? Well, I, yeah, I, I one of my, one of my uncles, when I was a kid, gave me some X-Men comics and I was like, all right, well, here we go. And just like from there, it was just like reading comics all the time. And then um, when I was in, when I went to college, I, I actually studied uh, film and uh, English lit. And so like comics wasn't really super on my radar as far as like a career, but I was like still reading them. And then, like, one of my first jobs out of college was uh, <laughs> grading essays on standardized tests. So, like, I already had, like, I've got some notes for you type of a thing. And then, <laughs> you know, from there, it was just sort of, like, a lot of, you know, writing and stuff on my own. And then um, I actually started working at Dynamite in the warehouse. <laughs> and, mm. Um You know, at some point. But, like, because I just wanted to be closer to it. And that was where there was an opening. And. I was like, hey, you know, if you ever have like an opening where, you know, somewhere in editorial or whatever, and you'd be willing to give me a shot. And then like after a while, I was like proofing stuff. And then as they brought more people in, there was like more of an opportunity to kind of train me on how to do things. So I became the editorial assistant and then just kind of worked my way up from there. So That's a, you know, the warehouse thing, the intern thing. My brother-in-law for a while was a vice president at Universal and everybody asked him, how did you get that job? And he always told them the whole story, which was I moved to LA. I got a job Xeroxing scripts in the script department at Universal. And when I heard there was an opportunity to become a script reader, I did free script reading on weekend. You know, I, I did some stuff. I got some samples. I presented them to the head of the story department. And when there was an opening for a reader, I jumped up. And he said that everyone I tell that story to says, how do I get that script reader job? No one asks how I get the Xeroxing scripts job. And he said, and that's why I won't help you. <laughs> if you ask me how to get the Xeroxing script, everyone wants to go to the next, you know, and when he was a script reader, he did that for two or three years. And then they had an opening for the most junior executive spot. And they were in a moment where they wanted to promote from within the company. So they promoted him out of script reader to junior executive. And he had to buy a bunch of suits. Uh, which he did not previously own. But I think that's a great example of like how people always want to skip the hard step. That's kind of the, in many ways, the most important step. Uh, my first job in Hollywood was literally erasing videotapes for the Lorimar company. <laughs> like standing in a loading dock with three quarter inch tapes and a giant machine called the Degauser that made my many dental implants ache that demagnetized video games. You know, don't did, have a lot uh, of metal in your mouth and work with a demagnetizer. It's, it's, a, I, it's a very dangerous set of circumstances. 
I did English subtitles for DVD releases. So uh, to this day, uh, you know, I created and edited them. So to this day, if you have MacGyver on DVD or Night Court or Murphy Brown, uh, um, any number of things, and you turn on the English subtitles on your DVD, that's, uh, you know, they were likely done by me. So Did you rewrite them at all? Did you, did you, did you have uh, any goals yeah. to improve them while you were doing it? <laughs> I, you know, I often wanted to, but uh, yeah. it goes through a big QC process, and then, yeah. um, uh, but, but you I don't know, remember uh, Mike. I don't remember MacGyver uh, quoting Camus in this scene. Where was that? <laughs> Does he really do that in this episode? <laughs> there, 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 there were a lot of on, on model. This is a tangent, but there are a lot of amazing MacGyver episodes where um, they would run out of money at the end of the season, and um, and so they would have to do something, and so. Uh, there was this episode, and they did a couple of these, where they just bought all of the old Italian job footage. Um, uh, you know, the, the Mini Coopers, uh, um, you know, racing through the, uh, the the streets of Italy or whatever. And um, and so they built a MacGyver episode around that, where they only had to film, like, 10 or 15 minutes worth of footage. And then they would just cut in scenes. They would cut in action from the Italian job. Oh, yeah. And, and, and yeah, you can look this up online. It's amazing. And so I just subtitled that episode. Um <laughs> Kind of amazing. You're stuff, only so. supposed to blow the bloody doors off. The uh, you know, and that was my first writing job in Hollywood was for VR Troopers, which like <laughs> the whole Saban yeah. universe is based on that concept. They bought Japanese TV so shows, cut the special effects out of them, and it's imagine like someone cutting all the effect shots out of Star Wars, handing you just that and going right something we can shoot for $20,000 that links all this footage together <laughs> using these actors wearing these costumes. And it was a little <clears throat> bit, I mean, talk about Freudian dream analysis. It was a little bit like, I think he's invented a thing that steals people's souls. I'm not sure what that, <laughs> like, what am I looking at? You know, and it's all in Japanese and not subtitled in any way that you understand. So you get like this half hour Japanese tokusatsu show and have to go, Okay, remove the people from it, and what am I, what am I left making out of this? But it, you know, ultimately, it's super creative work having to figure out like how to shoot wraparounds for big crazy. So this is way more, this is more uh, common than people think. By the yeah. way, as a filmmaking technique, the uh, I used to edit trailers for a, a company called Royal Oaks, which was run by Andrew Stevens. And every other movie was the submarine shots from Hunt for Red October with different interiors. <laughs> well, it, it, it was it, it, playing yeah. stuff from Top Gun with different cockpit shots. Like every was, other movie yeah. was that. It was my Justin Lin experience. I mean, I think I've told this on on the pod before, so I'll do it quick. But um, but for the sake of the conversation, um, my writing partner and I, my film TV writing partner and I, we get hired to write this big heist movie for Justin Lin, like right after, right in the wake of the Fast Six opening, which was like the largest opening in uh, Universal history at that point. Um, and we are, um, you know, uh, we, we, you know, it's based on one of our short stories. He bought it. He's interested in it. Um, we have our first powwow with Justin and we came in with all this stuff. And, um, and everything that is hard for a writer to do, like character work, thematics, all of this stuff, this is going to set up, this is going to pay off. And we love it. We're in love with ourselves. We're in love with our work. And we sit down with Justin and we start pitching all this stuff to him. And, and it's going great for about two minutes. And then his eyes glaze over. And at some point, he's just sitting there listening. And he puts a hand up. And he's like, let me tell you guys a story. He's like, fast five. 
We couldn't figure it out. Couldn't wrap my mind around it. Uh, he's like, Ben, I'm in the shower one day and it hits me, just blasts me in the face like a comet. He's like, Vin and Paul dragging a safe through Rio. He's like, I want, to, I want you to take all this thematics, all this character stuff and put it aside. He's like, I want you to go off for a week, two weeks, whatever, and find me five of those and then come back. And so, and so we had to go off for two weeks and we are trying to find our version of Vin and Paul dragging a safe through Rio. And we, we drummed up maybe six of those things and wrote up a couple of pages on everything uh, to which his executive had to read and then pitched to Justin as he was walking from you know, one thing to another. And, and we had six of these things and Justin's like, I like number one, I like number three and I like number four. And then we had to take number one, number three and number four and go off and we had to make a movie around those three massive set pieces. It was like writing by Mad Libs. And so, and this was like, you know, this is going to be a $200 million movie. <laughs> you, you just confirmed a suspicion I had about Fast Five, but awesome. Okay, great. But you know, it's, it is worth saying, not for nothing, that's how North by Northwest was made too. Oh yep. yeah. I, Hitchcock I, sat like, down with Ernest Lehman yeah. and said, yep. guy hanging off of Lincoln's nose at Rushmore, murder at the UN. Uh, what was the third one? Uh, the 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 plane chasing the crop duster chasing a guy in an empty field, go <laughs> like yeah. connect no, those it, it, three yeah, crazy it, it, things okay. together. All, all that said, Fast Five is a great movie. It is by far the best Fast and the Furious movie. It it, it, it is you know it, it is a very good action movie. Um, six is where the wheels start to come off, and and the problem with six is that they didn't you know they didn't bother to like sew the set pieces together they wanted to go so quickly that they just they went into shooting only having the set pieces and none of the connective tissue and so it's it is nonsensical i mean the action's awesome and then and then 7 gets a little bit better and the only reason it gets better is because they went into it that time trying to shoot an outline again and then tragically paul walker passed away in the middle of of filming and so they had to stop everything and they had to painstakingly go over what they have and salvage something and change things and sew everything back together. And so seven, in a lot of ways, and this is this is a hot take, is is like the second most coherent movie in the series <laughs> because they had to take so much time and so much care uh, 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 with editors and uh, and executives. I'm tying it back to our uh, our, our topic today to make a, a movie out of it. Um, also that, yeah, also the Wiz Khalifa song at the end just fucking devastates me. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> wow. It brings a fucking tear to my eye every time. Again, bring, bringing it back around, the, the, the thing that's counterintuitive, especially to people who've never worked in creative industries, I think, is that limitations are good. And someone, your story having to make sense to another person before you present it to an audience is probably a, probably a good thing, not a, not a bad thing. Uh, and I think a lot of people, a lot, there's a lot, I know it affected me, the fear of, but if I do things, then people might not like those things. Whereas the things in my head that I haven't written are perfect. <laughs> well, there's your difference between a writer and somebody who wants to be a writer. I mean, because like, if all you're thinking about is how, whatever I'm going to write, it's not going to be, it's not... Like, what if it's not great and then people don't like it? So I'm just not going to do it. As opposed yeah. to, you're going to write bad stuff. It happens. Like, you can't, you can't, I'd say you can't hit a home run every time. But then, like, you know, with modern baseball, they don't even want you to do that anyway. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but like, you know, that that's the thing. It's like, you just got to do it. 
you know, <laughs> no matter what people may think about it. Because if you don't do it, you're never going to know, you know? And you're never going to get better. Right. And that's, that's the thing. Like, so if you write something bad and then you show it to somebody and they go, Hey, you know, they may not say it, Hey, this is bad, but here's what can fix it. You know, like, how are you going to ever get to that point? You're going to, you know, if you don't show it to anybody, it's just going to sit as a file on your computer. Just yeah. with you, you convinced, like I wrote this really good thing, but no one's ever going to see it. Like it doesn't help you any. Well, and I'm, I don't know if you come up against this in the freelance world a lot, but I get asked for script notes on things. And I always say, do you want notes or do me, do you want me to tell you you're a good boy and you did, you did well? Like, which of those two things do you, what, do you really want an honest read or do you well, want yeah, me to and, say, and, this is yeah, amazing. And one is a catastrophic waste of everyone's time. And, Absolutely. and, and, you know, and if you're getting paid for that, then that's one thing. Uh, um, you know, you're not wasting my time if you're paying me for it. Uh, uh, you're wasting an opportunity. Um, but yeah, when, when a friend, you know, sends me a script and wants a pat on the back, it's, it's, you know, that's, that's a go fuck yourself moment, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think uh, for sure when I've worked with creators, a lot of independent creators, one of the first things I try to always like include in our conversation, if they're a newer creator, especially to the comic book world is, uh, I will be sure to give you uh, editing criticism that's as honest as possible. Uh, I try to highlight that I'm going to be very honest about what I think will need work. And, you know, I'll obviously compliment them if they're doing something well, too. I think it's good to, it, when you're editing, like, not just mention the bad, but if there is something good, like, point it out. Point out that they are doing something really good here. You really like this character. You really like this moment. Because I think that helps them build on other scenes. But then you could say, like, point to what they're doing well here so then they can apply it to another scene later on. Um, and I, I it, you know, you get some pe really great people sometimes, though, because I had a creator recently who literally in his for one of his first emails to me was like, tell me if it's shit. Just tell me if this is shit. Tell me if this issue is something people are actually going to read and enjoy or if I'm just wasting my time. So, yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate when a creator can go in with that kind of mindset. I know that's difficult for some people and it's understandable. So I think but I think it's really important. Yeah, it is. You raise a great point, though. It is really important i think and a lot of people who aren't trained in this kind of work don't know this not only say something positive generally lead with the positive so that it's yeah, yeah. we start on an yeah. up note yeah. but yeah i i learned this i was very again very fortunate experience i edit i directed a a short in college and i had two lead actors one of whom was just out of the box doing exactly what i needed and the other one struggled with it. I had, I had cast a very happy-go-lucky, cheerful boy as a sort of world-weary war veteran. And 19-year-olds are world-weary war veterans, but not this kid. But he was a very good actor, so I cast him. About halfway through shooting, the actor who needed no notes said to me rather glumly, I guess everything I'm doing is terrible. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, after every take, you take Rob aside and you talk to him for 10 minutes and then we shoot another take. You got nothing to say to me. I'm like, because it's perfect. I don't want to <laughs> ruin it. But it taught me now as a director, cut, that was fantastic. You know, like just the yeah. first thing I say, and I read a great, um, I'm not the world's biggest Sidney Pollack fan, but he, in his book about film directing, he talks about how much he hates Video Village. And he said, you know why I hate Video Village? Because even Robert Redford looks for my eyes after a cut to know if he did badly or did well. 
He's like, even someone who you think should be pretty secure on all fronts. He's like, you call cut. Robert Redford immediately looks for my face. Like, what does Sydney think about what we just did? So like giving that praise when it's needed. And as you say, Nicole, it's also you're reinforcing the good behavior. Yeah, it, it's, it's not when it's needed. I mean, you guys have made the point, but let me hit it right on the head. Like it is always needed. You know, it is always needed. Your first paragraph is what they did right and what you love about this thing and why it's great. And um, sometimes you know, it's I, like, I, I, hey, you really nailed the format. Yeah, 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 that's the fine. Spelling I, is yeah. top notch in this thing. I got to tell you, it's yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes it's just really nice work here. Here are a few thoughts. You know what I'm saying? And at least you started off with that. I mean, I, I, I have a, I have a like a template that I start. Uh, I, I, I do a lot of quote unquote editing myself because I, you know, I have four creator owned comics going at the same time, and I'm the person that hires the artist, the colorist, the the letterer, and I have to give notes. And it is, it is the same, it's the same process. It's the same, you know, skill set. And so it's like, enter name here. Very nice work on these pages. Uh, asterisk, 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 meaning put more compliments in here. Here are a few thoughts for you. And then, <laughs> and then you start listing the pages. That, 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 you know, that's how it has to go. You, you, you lay on, you did this right, you did this right, you did this right. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm dealing with a colorist in Indonesia who doesn't speak any English. Like my, my, uh, my script will go into Google Translate um uh he usually gleans 95 to 97 percent of what i'm trying to get at sometimes that two to five percent can be difficult right and so there are times where he has completely missed the mark on something just just simply because english is not his first language uh he speaks four languages but uh, you know but but there's this thing to negotiate i barely speak one so i'm not I, you know i'm not i'm not finding fault with him but sometimes you need to go an extra mile to kind of get the thing across the finish line and so even when i get something that doesn't remotely resemble what i was asking for it is this is a great piece of art uh uh you know you did you did a great job with here uh you know i i love the lighting in this scene we should actually use that on page 12. um however you know, if you look a little more closely at the script here, uh, this said this and this said this, so let's adjust this and let's adjust that. Um, uh, you have to lead with that because it is, um, I mean, this is a creative endeavor. Like we are in the business of making like, I don't know, emotional, intellectual, philosophical babies here. Like if you're not doing that as a writer or as a creator, like get out of the fucking business if you're not trying to say something meaningful. So if, if you receive something from me, I have poured whatever you want to say. I don't want to be a, 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 a you know, a loser about this shit, but I have poured heart. I have poured soul. Uh, most importantly, I have poured time into this thing, uh, which is a extremely precious resource to me. So I am giving you something that, that, that I think is there, that I think is meaningful. I don't by any means think it is perfect, but I have put myself into it. And so if I don't immediately hear back that all of that time you spent, all of that effort you put in, was meaningful, was valuable, um, uh, then that is going to be devastating to me. If you start picking it apart and thrashing it, then that is going to be devastating. Uh, uh, you know, the, the notes, like a good editor takes the tone of, I can see how much you put into this. I can see how meaningful this is. I can see how good this is going to be. So let me now help you sort through it and get it there. You know what I'm saying? And if you take that approach, like I'm going to fall in love with you. You know, I'm going to hire. I'm going to hire you as an editor every time. I'm going to embrace all the notes you have. I'm going to, uh, uh, you know, look at yours as a a, a word that I should, uh, you know, grasp onto and follow. And I, I I think that's really kind of the key to cracking all of this stuff. It's the key to good communication. All of this. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> the, uh, you know, the other part of it and the part of it that, you know, I, I feel like film prepared me, especially post-production prepared me for the aspect of writing comics that's getting the pages and giving notes on the pages and getting notes on the color and getting, giving notes on the, on the lettering. Um, just generally, like, what's your approach to the project management part of it? Do you feel like you were prepared for that with your studies, Nicole? What, you know, what, because that, to me, I, I feel like that's an undersold part of it is the, like, to me, one of the most important things an editor does is the coordination of all elements. And like Kevin, I know on some books, we had some deadline pressures where we had, we had one book where we had like a different artist every four pages. We had... Oh, there's an issue of a book we worked on where there were four artists. Yeah, the Betty Page one on the train. Yeah, and was I, the one where it was like because people weren't available or yeah. you know, in time, we were trying to get something out the door faster than necessary. Yeah, I had to like think about how how can I make it make sense that the style shifts every four pages into something we had completely different. Three or four artists, and then I was doing art corrections <laughs> to make them all tie together just because we didn't have time to send anything back to anybody. That's right. I had, I had written uh -huh. something that described an empty train car, and for some reason the artist drew like eight people in the background watching the heroin be taken hostage with a gun. And I'm like, all of those people are going to call security, so we can't and Kevin was like whiting out background <laughs> character. Awesome. Just because like we saw it and it was like, we don't have time to go back and have them fix it because they've got four more pages to do. So I'll do this while three artists are working at the same time on separate parts of the book. Uh, and you know, like obviously like, you know, and that's a sort of a thing for me that, that kind of like, <laughs> I want to, I want it to be as smooth and, you know, as much continuity as, as possible, but you know, it happens and it's happened in comic books for years. So like, I just have to kind of like get over it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we'll get it done, you know? Mm. But yeah. Yeah. Nicole, how do you approach that part of it for yourself? Yeah, it, it's definitely, I've kind of run the gauntlet with sometimes project management. I need to be more hands-on. Sometimes I can like kind of sit back a bit more because the creators kind of have everything in hand. They have a lot of experience or they have a, a, a schedule that I usually, usually they'll, if they don't need me to make the schedule, that's usually a, a good sign that they're going to, that they, and they then set up a schedule that then they meet on a weekly basis or something like that. That's usually a good sign that it's going to go pretty smoothly. But, you know, there are a lot of times where I have to set up a schedule for them. And sometimes I have to push them through emails gently, gently, at least at first, um, to hit if they're not hitting deadlines or things like that, that they need to hit. And, and sometimes it can be more of a relaxed process because I've worked with independent creators that, you know, they don't have a publisher necessarily breathing down their neck. You can take more time with it. But sometimes there's people who are on a more rigid timetable and sometimes you know life happens and you have mm -hmm. to push back the timetable and then that's something that i think is really important to work on as an editor if you're a project manager as well on something because obviously if someone has whether it's a personal or professional issue that they it's that's something they can't avoid then you need to work with them to figure out what works for their schedule so mm -hmm. it's yeah you you really don't always know exactly what you're going into with a project how easy the project management's going to be no matter how much experience a person has you know there's always a chance that it won't go as smoothly as you expect so you kind of have to be prepared for that 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I feel really, like I, I'm I'm the rare writer that I will speak up heavily in favor of deadlines. Uh, I have had publishers and editors, uh, not Kevin in this case, give me who were like for some reason they didn't want to they didn't want to oppress me by giving me a deadline or they or they themselves didn't know their own publication schedule. And I always want to say randomly assign me a deadline so I have can hit it because otherwise I'm going to focus on the people who gave me a deadline. Yeah. You know, I'm going to I'm going to do the thing that's in front of me right now that that I'm being told needs to be done right now. You yeah, know? and some I've definitely had people who have told me stories where they haven't been given a deadline and then like a week later they'll get the email of like, "Hey, is this done yet?" <laughs> that is <laughs> like that is inevitably the the most <laughs> impatient people are the people who told you that, "I'll oh, get it done when you can." Yeah, yeah. And I then mean, suddenly it's like, "Why don't I have this?" Because when you can is not a thing on my calendar. I've also been in the position where it's like, no, we're not in a huge rush. So, you know, sometime in the next month or so, if you can get it done. And then out of nowhere, someone will be like, hey, you know what? We actually just decided without talking to you that we need a preview for this um, tomorrow. Uh, Yeah. Here's the thing about that. Like, you know, if I had known that, we would be in a good position. But, like, let me see what I can do. And then I have to go and, like, apologize to a letterer a color you know just be like hey so um you know that thing where you probably haven't even started yet i need right. it done now and and i hate that because it's like you know on one hand it makes me feel unprofessional you know and then it's messing with like with project management i mean not even just like you know for me it's like i know what projects i have in front of me i don't know every project that all the freelancers and everybody's working on so i can't assume everything you know anything (laughs) like Mm -hmm. oh um you're working on 10 things right now and i didn't give you a proper date because i thought it would all be good and then now here we are you know so it's there's a lot of outside factors when working with like publishers and licensors there's you know there's always like a chaos element you know that's yeah somewhere above your pay grade something's gonna happen and then you're just like well i gotta go ruin someone else's day now so but yeah no the the previews thing i always think about you know so many times you're asked to write a solicit for a book you haven't even begun to script yet (laughs) because of the pressures in the industry and i've gotten pretty good at what i call you know i used to crack up at the clearly unprepared TV guide writer back when TV guide was a thing. Every once in a while you'd hear, you'd see a, a, a premise that was Star Trek, one hour, color, six o'clock, channel 11. Kirk and Spock run into trouble on an alien planet. Oh, that one. <laughs> oh, that, ep- oh, I love that episode. Mulder yeah. and Scully investigate a strange occurrence in the Midwest. Oh, that's my favorite X-Files episode. So you get a sometimes when you're writing solicits, it's a little bit like more crazy shit happens. It's going to be 20 pages. You know, like, um, and, and that's another, that's another tool of the trade. And I, you know, you wonder, can people tell when I wrote this solicit, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do in this comic. Right. (laughs) And that's also the advantage of like, you know, when you have enough lead time for things, I mean, and that, oh man, that's, that stuff still gives me like, I graduated from having the stress dream of, uh, oh man, there's a class that I didn't go to all semester and now it's the final and I need to graduate. 
to, oh no, there's a book I didn't know I was working on and it's going to print next week, you know? That's the sort of like stress dream you have because there's always something like that. And it's always like, all right, so if we want to start talking about a book, we want to solicit, like, uh, you want to, you know, start the, you know, get it started. And then three months from now, we'll talk about when we're going to get it in the previews catalog. And they're like, no, it's going in right now. It's like, I don't have anything, you know? The the one aspect of being a professional comic book writer is the mystery from my childhood of why the cover never had anything to do with what was inside (laughs) the comic (laughs) has now been decidedly answered for me. Oh, because the comic did not exist when Joe Kubert drew that. He had no idea what was going to happen. So it's just some weird ass pinup situation that, does not in any way relate to the contents. And I actually kind of, my 1970s heart loves it. A, a half a dozen times I've done the 1970s comic book writer thing of, say, that's a pretty good cover. I should write a comic <laughs> that, that uh, where that happens. Yeah. You know, the, the entire third arc of the Elvira series where she gets involved with witches is because John Royal drew a cover of her on a witch's broom. And it looked like, I was like, oh, that's really fun. I should do a thing with that. <laughs> <laughs> I got four. I got four issues out of that, <clears throat> you know. And uh, but it's it is a fascinating comics, in particularly, are a medium where uh, the fans know nothing about how the sausage is made. Like it, it's a it's a wider gulf, I would say, even than film or television. Uh, and you can kind of tell by how they talk about how things happen or why they happen. And you go, yeah, no, that wasn't, that wasn't, that had nothing to do with that. Uh, they usually get cause and effect backwards. Uh, yeah. A lot, a lot of times they literally reverse cause and effect. It's like, no, actually that, that happened because of that other thing. Um, but what are the most, I should ask, what are the most frustrating things that creators can do? to you as an editor. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. This is the this is the this well, is the, the sixty four thousand Yeah. Most I um not communicate. Mm-hmm. Uh that to me that's the big thing. It's like, hey, you know, if you got a problem and you can't hit your deadline, just please tell me. I I, I will, you know, I'll figure something out or mm-hmm. you know, I'll make the case or whatever we need to do. But I mean if you go silent and I was expecting you to give me something and now I don't know if I'm getting it or if I, if I, or if I have to rush off and hire somebody else to do it and now I'm going to get like two things like, uh, yeah, not communicating is the, is my number one sin. Um, I'm sure I'll think of something else. I mean, I don't know, Nicole, <laughs> if you have, if you have, some, but, uh, no, I'd say communication is a big one. I, I should preface this by saying I love all the creators I work with. They're wonderful. Yes. But yes, we, they, they yes communication is crazy. really important. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not scary. You can, you know, you can, they can email me whenever they want. But yeah, I've, I've had people who are, uh, you know, more hesitant to reach out and communicate what their issue is. Uh, I think the biggest thing, too, is especially for people n- newer in the industry, but, you know, sometimes veterans, too, sometimes, you know, either... They don't want to listen to feedback or in some cases they're afraid of pushing back on the feedback. So they might accept something I'm suggesting to them. And then it doesn't, it doesn't actually work down the line for them, but they were worried and didn't want to speak up and say like, Oh, this isn't what I mean. Because sometimes maybe I don't, the the thing that's interesting, I think with comics, um, especially when it comes to versus screenplays, like you were talking about, 
with the screenplay, you probably have the entire screenplay in front of you, like for the entire movie. So you can see scene 24 and you can see scene 70. But I've had some creators where they're like, I know I want this to be a four to six issue book, but I've only written the script for the first issue. So they might set up something in issue one that's going to pay off later down the line. But I have no way of knowing that if they haven't communicated that to me. So if I suggest making a change that affects it later on down the line and they don't feel comfortable talking to me about that, it might end up screwing something else down the line that I wasn't aware of, which is why I also think it's important when you get stuff back from creators. Um, if they're only giving you one script, see if they can give you, even if it's just a rough outline, though I'd prefer if they have like an issue by issue synopsis type of thing, which they're gonna need if they're gonna, if they need to pitch the book, that's something they're gonna need anyway. So I should see an issue by issue synopsis so I get an idea of what they want to happen in each book. It's gonna help me too with the editing process. Yeah, no, I, I, I've actually like, this is the best case, worst case scenario that I've run into of like a lot of times dynamite very nicely has a lot of faith in my abilities. So Joe Ryband will say yes to a four sentence pitch for a five issue series. <laughs> and then I get to that third issue and I'm like, oh, what was I gonna, what was I gonna do here? How was I gonna fill 20 pages? <laughs> so like I try to be a little, and again, a lot of times that's deadline stuff. Uh, sort of one of the things that bites me in the ass a little bit of Joe hates wasting anyone's time so a lot of times he won't tell you he's working on getting you getting something set up and then he gets it set up and he's like, okay, now you, I need the issue in two weeks. And I'm like, ah, uh, I would have preferred when you started negotiating with this license holder for this project that you told me that I might have to think about it down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a little bit. So sometimes my pitches can be very like uh, a thing happens in issue one and then a second thing happens in issue two and then a third thing. And that will, that will inevitably bite you in the ass. The more prep time, the better. The I the the my favorite Elvira thing we worked on, which Kevin worked on for a while before leaving the company, was the Kickstarter project, and it was largely because the pandemic delayed it for months and months and months. And me and Dave Acosta got to kick ideas around, and you know we changed the climax even after everything was finished because we could because it didn't. Dave had a story idea that I was able to put across without changing the art. It was literally coloring and lettering. We had a villain who was leading an army of uh, diseased cult members. And literally when it was done, Dave said, wouldn't it be great if he was actually faking it, if he wasn't actually, if he didn't actually have the plague and he was faking it. And, uh, the cure for the plague, which is a long, ridiculous story itself, is you get splashed in the face with a with coffee, with a latte. And I was able to say, oh, well, Walter Perea was the uh, colorist. So I was like, Walter, have the, the orange face coloring dripping off with the coffee. And then I'll have an off-screen line, oh, you fraud. And then we got that idea in without actually changing the inking, without changing, you know. Uh, but we would, you know, if we had been on a monthly schedule, no way in hell that would have even, that idea wouldn't have occurred to either of us. Um, and it's the same thing. We, you know, the approvals process can sometimes be tricky when you're dealing with a license holder and particularly when you're dealing with a license holder who's very, very busy. So, uh, 
like the latest Elvira series, I finished all four scripts before anyone started drawing anything. And that's not always possible in the world of monthly, you know, published comics. But man, is it preferable uh, to just, you know, you, you know, as you were saying, Nicole, the artist can see where it's going, can see what is being, and I always try my best. Chaykin had, I was watching one of his uh, talent talks the other day and he had a great rant about, I'm not, you know, I'm the artist. I'm not your friggin' audience. Do not try to surprise me. I don't want to be surprised. I want to know what everything means. I want to know why I'm drawing every single thing I'm drawing. Don't think I'm a reader that needs to go like, oh, that's why that happened. No, tell me why it's happening right now. Cause I have to draw the goddamn thing in a way that it makes sense. And uh, I think that's a, uh, that's, I think that's a really good note because I think as writers, you want someone reading your work to be experiencing it as an audience member. And it's like, that is so not your artist. You know, there's a degree to that where you want them to be having a good time. You want them to enjoy the experience, but they got to understand what's happening. You know? Yeah. I mean, because, you know, in the end, like comics are a collaboration. So, you know, if you're trying to surprise your. <laughs> your coworkers on this thing. And instead, if they know everything up front and can think of a, a better way to, or a good way to convey, you know, like, Oh, it's a mystery. Here's the reveal. Let me get the clues in. Right. But again, yeah. it's collaboration. I mean, it's like, I mean, it may be clever, but it's not going to, it's not going to help the person drawing the book to be like, wait, the whole time I should have been keeping that in mind. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's, you know, the endless mystery of was George Lucas making it up as he goes along. The deep breath that Alec Guinness takes before he answers the question, how did my father die? It sure seems to me like somebody whispered in his ear, this is a bigger deal. Even if George Lucas just whispered in his ear, you're kind of not telling the kid the truth. Even if he didn't tell him what the truth was, right. either someone whispered something to Alec Guinness about how tricky what he was doing is in that moment, or he's just the greatest actor in the world and intuited, I'm telling a 20-year-old story and I'm leaving holy shit, am I leaving a lot of detail out of this thing when I tell this kid this story? Because it's so well played. You know, he takes a deep breath, he rocks back and forth, he looks at the kid out of the corner of his eyes for a second, and then he delivers it. And boy, that seems like an actor who did his homework and knew that something more interesting than what's on the surface of that moment is going on. And I think that's that may be a creaky metaphor, but that's, if your artist knows what you're going for, uh, as well as what you're like Dave Acosta and I talk about thematic stuff a lot before we get to work on a comic of, you know, I sort of always simplistically break, break it down into the difference between plot and story plot is this happened. Then this happened and story is why are we doing this? Why does anybody care about this story? Why, what are we trying to say with it? And, you know, and Dave will some, you know, I'll send him a first issue. And if we have, he'll write me and say, what, what are we going for here? What are we, what are, what are we trying to say with this? And uh, that's, you know, that's all, that's also good editing, you know? Well, you, actually, that's something I actually really liked about the way you guys work together is that you would like give me a script and be like, yeah, that was actually Dave's idea. And I'm like, well, I'm so glad you guys actually were able to talk oh, about yeah. that before it even like before it got to me. Because then you were both on the same page and then I was able to trust like, well, the two of you know what you're doing. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, that's very rare. <laughs> you know, I, I was really lucky to 
to experience that with the two of I'm, you. I'm, but like, I'm sad to hear that that's rare because I just think it's like what Ryland said earlier about the the craft service person thing. It's like, yeah, man, turning down a good idea just because you're not the jerk that came up with it. Like, I, I, that is, there's nothing more self defeating than going. I and I, you know, I will not. I will leave all the names out of this story, but a top tier writer worked with a friend of mine who is a top tier artist like legendary artist legendary writer and the legendary writer took absolutely no notes from the legendary artist about the storytelling and it's just like one this is a give and take have more respect than that both your names are going on the cover of this thing and two what kind of idiot doesn't listen to a legendary artist when they have some thoughts about your script? Like, yeah. listen to the thoughts, man. It's uh, it's it's worth listening, you know. Yeah, I mean, there there are a couple of things that go into it, right? I mean, I think that as as a, I mean, you know, most of my stuff at this point is creator owned, so I'm I'm the boss, right? <laughs> Not just the writer, I'm the boss, right? And um, and a lot of artists, again, this is how they make their money. They want to draw as many pages in a month as they can. And it's not to say that their quality is suffering, but to push back, to have this dialogue, uh, uh, all of that stuff, it, it takes effort. It's more difficult for them. Uh, and, and in some cases, they're, they're not arguing, but you know, they're arguing with the boss. They're trying to change the boss's mind. It's not worth it to a lot of them. You know what I'm saying? So they get into a rhythm over time of, I'm going to put my head down. I'm going to do what I'm asked. Uh, uh, you know, and, 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 and you know, get across the finish line. And it's like, you can get great art that way. You know, you get better art if there is this interaction. Um, you know, an issue I have often is that my, my scripts are, are very specific. You know, I'm the guy who will, I, you know, I, 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 I'm not terse. I, 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 uh, uh, you know, I don't get it done quickly. I write, you know, a 50 page script with visual aids and, and I am explaining, well, this tiny thing that seems unimportant now, it's going to be important because of this. And, and a few issues down the line, it's going to, it's going to pay off like this. And so we really need to nail this. And there's all this very specific stuff. And, and if I'm not careful, that can turn, I don't know how to put this, that can make an artist scared to take issue with things. Well, it's like, this guy has, <laughs> this guy has a very detailed vision of what he's looking for. Right. Um, uh, and so it becomes hard to kind of pick that apart and take issue with it. Um, and so I owe it to my artists. I owe it to my project to have a very long and very frank discussion at the beginning of any project. And the first thing I say to them is, look, um, I can be very forceful. My scripts are going to feel very forceful. They're going to feel, uh, 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 and, 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 and that may put you off. However, I am going to count on you to, if you see a better way to do things, to come back at me and, and convince me. You know what I'm saying? Uh, please do that because the, the project is going to be better. I have that, I have that, have that discussion every time. And in fact, on mo most of my issue one scripts, those are the opening lines, right? Um, and what I find is that, you know, an art, art uh, you know, a good artist kind of picks and chooses where they, they come back, but about 95% of the time they come back, they're 100% right. And, and the project ends up being 100% better because they spoke up, because they pushed back, because they came with a, 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 an idea. Um, and so, you know, again, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%
I mean, sometimes that's your, sometimes that's your 2%, right? And so if you're cutting that out um, on either side, if the artist is cutting that out because of, you know, because he wants to get pages done or because he's scared to take issue with things, or if the writer, the boss is, uh, is cutting that out because his ego is the size of fucking Texas and, and he thinks he's written the greatest script since fucking Citizen Kane or whatever, uh, you're fucking your shit up, man. Yeah. It's like I said, it's a collaborative, you know, media, you know, like, yeah, you're working together. I mean, that's, that's, a, I feel like, you know, and it's the same thing with like how I started the whole thing where people think, oh, the editors are the enemy. And it's like, no, we all want to make something great. Let us do it. Yeah. No. And the, and, and, and again, the editor is your ally, you know, you know, Kevin, you were, invaluable in being the buffer between me and dynamite (laughs) and i say that with all the love in the world but it you know you you need an ally you need a lot of times you need someone to say hey run interference for me for a week while i deal with this issue i'm having you know help help me get this idea across to the inker who doesn't who who's going the wrong way with this you know there's a there's a famous story about, uh, or I don't know how famous it. John Borman, when he was a young, struggling director, uh, got a gig making a movie with Lee Marvin, and Lee Marvin really saw uh, his potential and his talent and all those things. And early in the schedule, he had this big, complicated action scene, and he literally at a very expensive location, and he just he was standing on the roof, staring out at Alcatraz, where they were shooting the scene. And Lee Marvin walks up to him and says, "You don't have it today, do you?" And he's like, I really, Lee, I don't know what to do. And Lee Marvin staged a drunken tantrum. He was was like his only day not drinking on the set. And he was like, I got you, buddy. And he like (laughs) wandered off into the set with a whiskey bottle in his hand, goofing it up. And he's like, they'll never fire me. (laughs) Like, you know, they'll fire you for fucking up this expensive location shoot. They'll never follow me, fire me. So I'm going to wander out and be a drunken ass. And they're gonna send everybody home. He's like, but be fucking be ready tomorrow, man. I can't do this every day. <laughs> like, and I think there's there's a true aspect of you're in the trenches together on this stuff, uh, trying to do the best work you can. And your editor is abs- absolutely your ally. I mean, I know that over the you know, in the fullness of everything, there are people who've had contentious experiences with editors and there are editors who've had contentious experience with writers who didn't it, I mean just to, to sum up everything we've said it's the the relationship between editor and creator is one of your many tools in getting the best possible work done and if you leave that tool in the box you're a fool yeah. like the, well yeah yeah it, 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 an editor is like a fixer right it's you know an editor is Winston fucking wolf you know they will look at a project and and they keep the entire momentum of a project going. There are five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten links in the chain, and they know how to move the project along that chain. Because any link, you know, something can get hung up, something can go wrong, something can go, uh, you know, uh, uh, terrible. You know, they they are whisperers. Um, back to the Justin Lin thing. Like when we wrote up our when we wrote up our our you know list of our whatever our 10 uh, set pieces that he had to choose from, we wrote up a great document. That document was 10 pages long. 
Justin Lin is a very busy man. You know, he's off shooting fucking, uh, you know, season two of, uh, of um, fucking, uh, God, what was the HBO crime show? Uh, he's off shooting a fucking Mountain Dew commercial. He's prepping a Star Trek sequel. He's doing this, he's doing that. He's not going to sit down and read a 10-page document. And if we had waited for him to read a 10-page document, uh, you know, the project would have died in the fucking water. There's no chance it would ever get made. And so you had to find somebody like, like you know, these people that we're talking about. It was the right executive, you know, uh, uh, who was a Justin Whisperer. And we had to call her and we had to say, hey, we have this 10-page uh, document that Justin's never going to read. We need you to read it. We need you to get the information across to Justin, Justin and pull an answer out of him, right? And and a couple hours later, you know, what, this would have went on for weeks. A couple hours later, we get a phone call from her being like one, three, and four. Run with that. Um, and that is what a great editor does. I mean, that was what, um, I mean, Nicole never directly edited my stuff at Action Lab, but she was, she was the Action Lab whisperer. It, you know, uh, 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 People at any comic book company are very busy, right? And they are managing whatever dozens of projects, uh, trying to get this for print, uh, ready for print, trying to uh, pull this into the the company, all of that stuff. And so, I mean, they're you know completely discombobulated. Uh, what Nicole could do is, if you needed some something from someone else, uh, rather than contacting that person, which may be you know a week long you know uh, fit. You could contact Nicole and say, Nicole, I'm trying to get this done. And Nicole knew exactly who to go to, when to go to them, how to approach them. And then again, in an hour, you would have an email back from Nicole saying, do this, as opposed to waiting a week to get an answer from the person you were trying to get the answer from. And so, um, and so again, Winston Wolf, like that, that person makes the world go, right? Uh, if you have a problem, if no one else can help, <laughs> and if you can find them, uh, uh, you know, somebody like that comes in and uh, and solves the problem. And so, uh, I for know, everyone uh, under the age of forty-five, that was a quote of the opening <laughs> of the A Team, uh, which you may only know because of the YouTube video of the Bad Batch opening reconfigured as the A Team. Uh, I like. To, I, I, like to, I, I like. I, to, I grew up with a man thing. born in nineteen twenty-four, so I'm very used to footnoting cultural references, including my own. I knew the eighteen thing. I didn't know the bad batch thing, so I don't know where my if age someone lies read in the middle it, of there. Someone yeah. read the opening credits of the bad batch as the A team opening. <laughs> which is, it's very very funny. It's very, and it's and apropos, I think, uh, to the that series. Well, we should probably wrap it up. We're at fifteen minutes over the hour. Um, we usually uh, wrap up by uh, where can people find you uh, and what are you working on next? Uh, Nicole, where can people find you on the internet and what are you working on presently? Sure. Um, I have a website, comicmaven.com and most of my socials you can find, you know, at Comic Maven and things like that. Um, I'm working, uh, I teased it a bit at the beginning. I'm, I'm working on about four or five series. I'm project managing and editing for Scout Comics. Again, I can't really talk about it yet, but at least one of them is going to be uh, in previews soon. Um, and I still am regularly working with Tapas on a few of their series, like Come Down Machine, which comes out every Friday, and Thirst, which is every Tuesday. Uh, also, uh, what else? <laughs> um, well, you said I, you wanted to, you also said you're writing something. And what's your plan for that? Is that a Kickstarter thing? Or are you going to try and place that with one of the publishers you work with? Uh, yeah, I'm doing Road Trip to Hell right now. I've actually, I did a Kickstarter. I decided I wanted to try to kickstart the first arc of the book 
um, each issue I wanted to kickstart. And then when I finished the arc, the first arc for the book, I want to start looking at publishers. Um, I've definitely been uh, looking at Scout Comics because since I've been working with them, they've been like really awesome. Like just seeing how they communicate with creators and things like that. I've really enjoyed working with them. So that's- We love uh, Charlie on this show. Yes, I, I love him. He's great. We um, love Charlie on the show. Yeah, he's so great. But um, I'm so I'm up to the third issue of Road Trip to Hell, which I've been meaning to put on Kickstarter, but I've been doing so many other things editing wise and even freelance freelance writing that I put it on the back burner for a while. So I'm hoping to get the third issue onto Kickstarter, hopefully next month, because the actual issue, all the art, the letters, everything's done. It's, oh, it's literally great. done. I just have to I just have to put it on Kickstarter. Um, and then after that wraps, I'm hoping to start pitching it places since it's say three issues is the first arc and I have future volumes planned out. So uh, yeah, fingers crossed that that all goes well. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. And Kevin? Um, I have a website. Uh, it's electricdracula.com. And that's you can find me on Twitter at electricdracula.com. And I'm working on a bunch of titles at a, a blaze and um, got some stuff I can't talk about yet because it's still early process for that. And I got a bunch of pitches in the works, which hopefully we'll find some home soon and uh, launching a, um, a web comic called Drowse that's going to be coming up soon. Probably in the next month, we'll launch that one. Nice. So yeah, I'll have more information on the website and, on my Twitter as, <laughs> as things come up, you know? So great. And Ryland, we got, you got suicide job geese coming in August, August. Yeah. It is available for pre-order right now in, uh, in fine comic shops everywhere. Uh, put it on your pull list. Uh, I am at Ryland grant, uh, on all forms of social media. That is R Y L E N D G R A N T. If you are just listening, um, I spell it because it's not a real name. My parents just drunkenly uh, saddled me with it, and, uh, <laughs> and, and now I have to spell it for you. Um, the uh, Ringo Award-winning Aberrant and the four-time uh, Ringo-nominated Banjacks are available in fine comic shops everywhere and online uh, via Amazon and Comixology. So uh, check those out; those are great. Um, my cool astral projection thriller, The Jump. Uh, and my Fargo S crime drama, The Peacekeepers, uh, I did the whole Kickstarter thing with, and they are currently available via backer kit. If you go to uh, the jump two, the number two, and uh, the jump all one word, uh, the jump two.backerkit.com, uh, you can get a hold of those right now. Um, it's also kind of a cool one stop uh, Ryland Grant shop um, if you're looking for uh, signed copies of uh, Aberrant or, or Banjax, or if you're looking for um, rare con variants, uh, got a lot of them on this wall, but we did some really funky uh, con variants that people got all kind of uh, crazy for. Um, uh, our Gremlins uh, uh, Banjax variant, our Rocky Four Banjax variant, uh, um, our Karate Kid Aberrant variant, and so on and so forth. Um, those were only available, uh, you know, for like a single weekend in 2019 at San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, I have a small cachet of these things. They are available uh, via the Backer Kit store and they will be gone soon. So if you want one, if you're looking for one, uh, hit the Backer Kit shop and I will send them to you. Uh, yeah, that's about it. Uh, we're order suicide jockeys. What do you got for us, Dave? I am, uh, easily found at davidavalonefreelance.com, which branches off to all of the things on Twitter, 
There's the wonderful offices of Linktree, which allow you to click on one thing and see the author page on Amazon, the author page on Comixology, and all that going on. There is uh, Elvira Meets Vincent Price um, for four glorious issues in starting in August as they go on the hunt for a missing, uh, a lost legendary Vincent Price film, which, believe it or not, is vaguely based on a true story. Um, and uh, after there will actually be two additional uh, Elvira Kickstarters this year that I don't know when those are going to hit, uh, but those are fun stories. And uh, working on getting Drawing Blood Volume 2 out, a uh, couple other things in the, in the works, but, you know, follow me on the things and you will see the things if I can use super, super specific nouns. For a minute. Uh, thank you so much to Kevin and Nicole for uh, joining us. Uh, it was a great discussion, and we'll see you on the next exciting episode. Thanks for listening, guys. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more Madcap Hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.